one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome back to another episode of the How I Quit Alcohol podcast. For first-time listeners, please be aware that not all of the conversations within this podcast are suitable for children. I'd also like to add a trigger warning that sometimes the conversations can get a little heavy. We may talk about things like sexual abuse, domestic violence, drug use and alcohol use. And if you feel that that may trigger you, please do not tune in. Also, I'd like to add, if you are a heavy daily drinker, please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bunjalung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, do a gal a favor. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Monday Distillery. Monday Distillery is a new age beverage company revolutionising the way we look at having a night out with friends. They make sophisticated, non-alcoholic beverages that are sugar-free and full of social graces. Now you can enjoy a good time, love what you drink and love yourself the next day too. Stay high in spirits, keep a clear mind. Cheers to Monday. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the Zoom room, I'm joined by the gorgeous, the very (laughs) colourful Calamity Tash from Adelaide. How are you, Tash? I'm so well. Hi, Danny. Nice to finally meet you. (laughs) I know this has been a long time coming. Um, I think I say that about every guest. I'm like, ah, it really has this person. (laughs) But it feels like a long time coming anyway. But thank you so much for for coming on. I'm just commenting. People can't see this, but you're surrounded by insanely (laughs) bright colors. You've got rainbow hair. You've got rainbow colored clothes on. And I'm wearing, (laughs) what color is this? This is like a, what am I wearing? Olive? An olive linen shirt and brown cord shorts. We could (laughs) have been more opposite. I'm I'm used to being the brightest one in the room. I understand. (laughs) What's with all the colour? Like this is incredible. Yeah. 
I have always been like this uh, for as long as I can remember my bedroom, my surroundings. I've always loved the chaos of color. Um, Mm. I've always found it to be really calming and feels like a natural state. And people that know me best know that when I'm in all black, top to toe, that don't talk to me. I'm I'm off I'm off duty. Don't talk to me. <laughs> That's a really great. You can really send that. That would come home strong for people that know you. I'm sure. So you're four years and three months sober. How old are you, Tash? Um, I turned thirty this year. Just turned thirty. Yeah, wow. yeah. So I think hitting thirty and already being into my sober journey just felt incredible. My thirtieth milestone felt like a milestone I honestly never really planned to reach. So when I got there and I was thriving in the way that I feel I am now, it was such a tremendous feeling. It was, yeah, fantastic. Wow, that's amazing. So you you took up sobriety, I'm guessing then from my calculations, around 26 or 25 and a half years old. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think just about to turn 26. Um, I actually met someone who was sober and I know we all talk about that light bulb moment, but that was it for me. I truly went, oh my God, we can do that. (laughs) We can just stop. Like, I don't, I mean, just stop. You know that that's not, uh, not how it goes, but it had never occurred to me that a younger person, you know, in their twenties could make the choice to be sober and to go into recovery. Um, That felt like something I always told myself I would do when I was older and when I needed to and when it was really a quote unquote issue um, full well knowing that it was already controlling my life it was very much already an issue uh, just not one that I was ready ready to face. It's so interesting like you say oh right oh we can do that Mm. (laughs) like oh we can do a life without alcohol oh right didn't know and often like honestly like I'd definitely say when I was your age oh my God, like wouldn't even, it wasn't even my radar. I didn't even think that that was a possibility. So that's fantastic. When you say you met someone, was it in a like lover's capacity or just you just met someone? It was actually, yeah, it was in a romantic capacity. But I do Mm. think that the situation would have been the same had it just been uh, meeting a sober person, which is Mm. why I live my recovery out loud. I talk about it all the time. I mention it all the time. If even somebody watching one story can hear, oh, that bright, colourful, exuberant person chooses a sober life. Maybe I too, you know, maybe a queer, bright, exuberant person. Maybe I can also be sober. Um, I think it's important to have representations, you know, and what I thought of of an alcoholic was, you know, a middle-aged man or, you know, maybe a a person really hard on their luck in, you know, in their late fifties or something, you don't think of a bright, colorful, you know, queer artist. That's not, I know for most people, that's not where we go when we think of addiction, recovery, those kinds of topics. Um, Yeah. So meeting someone else who was like me and in my age bracket, I could see that it was possible. It, It gave me hope. Wow, it's so amazing. And I love, I really love this whole vision of you as well. And just sort of putting it out there that you can live a beautiful, colorful, queer, whatever, yes. just a beautiful, colorful existence. Yes. Um, and that you was, don't need the alcohol. Yeah. And I think that was so much a part of that beginning journey, that first year, two years, to be honest. I was so concerned that this personality, this person that I am, I was so sure that that was alcohol-based. I was so sure that I could not be 
outlandish, that I couldn't be loud, that I couldn't be confident, that I couldn't have a good time. I was so sure of those as if they were facts. And as I got further and further into my recovery, you have that realization that you're still a maniac of a person just in a sober person's body now. And Mm. it was actually almost daunting at the beginning. And I thought, oh my God, so you're telling me I'm like this anyway? And it was kind of horrifying at first. But then as I learned true love and true self-acceptance, I am now overjoyed that I get to be this version of myself at full capacity and remember everything and every interaction is genuine and meaningful and important as opposed to these throwaway drunken comments that I might, you know, make or this drunken wisdom that, you know, having DMs at the pub. Mm-hmm. Um, but now everything I do and say is intentional. It has purpose. Um, and I can really show up for the people in my life in a way that I couldn't before. It's, yeah, it's a tremendous feeling. It's amazing. And it's so true. You realize I can still be myself to my fullest capacity, if not more. More, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, incredible. Tell us a bit about how you got started with alcohol and tell us a bit about that whole journey. So tell us about, like, take us back to the very first time you drank and then the progression. (laughs) Um, I, as a young person, my parents were both in the wine industry um, from both a sales perspective and a graphic design perspective. Um, so from a young age, alcohol around the house, wine specifically, was very, very normalised. Um, having my sister and I do wine tastings at dinner was very normalised uh, because, you know, as my father would explain, we are children, so we have different palates. And so we could taste things and and pick up on things that adults could not. And this was my, you know, dad's well-meaning way of trying to explain developing taste buds and things like that. But I guess it started a really early habit. And I watched the way that the people in my life drank. And at the time, I thought that was normal behavior. And now I see that it, it, they probably, well, they do drink in excess. <clears throat> That's not um, something that they're willing to address, which is its own issue. Um, but yes, I grew up with alcohol being used almost as a, a coping mechanism. Um, if things are overwhelming, if you are going to events you don't want to go to, what I saw was that you drank to get through those events and that you drank to put up with people you didn't like. Um, and it seemed to make things better for those people around me. So I witnessed that a lot. Um, and I was aware of the unhealthy alcohol behavior of those around me from a really young age. And I remember being, mm. how sorry, how old were you when you were doing these tastings? Um, oh, maybe between 10 and 15. Um, young. Yeah, but, but you know, very little. It wasn't ever, yeah. you know, here's a glass of wine at dinner. It yeah. was just, we want you to taste this. And what do you think? And, and mm-hmm. or my parents would have, they would make cocktail nights and we would all want a little sip of, you know, what are you trying? And we want to be involved, you know? Mm. Um, and so then when I was about, you know, 14, 15, started school, um, instantly was attracted to the people in school who were maybe a little more of the bad boy types, you know, um, found myself hanging out with older people from a really young age. I never really related to my peers. I didn't have the same interests. I didn't have the same views or even world experience, life experience. Um, I traveled a lot as a child. My family traveled a lot. I was very, very, um, 
privileged in that way, but it did mean that I couldn't quite relate to my peers. And so all the older people I was hanging out with were drinking and, you know, maybe they were 16 and 17. And so giving the 14-year-old a drink really didn't seem like a big deal. Um, And I know immediately I remember feeling the way that it, it numbed the anxiety in my brain. That was what was addictive. The addiction was the numbing part. It wasn't the drinking. It wasn't the having fun. It was when I drink, I don't feel sad or I don't, in those early days, at least, um, you know, I drank to, I drank my feelings. I drank to cover up any anxiety or, you know, childhood issues. And then as I got older and older, I could see that the way I drank was not the same as the way my peers drank. And, you know, we got to 16, 17, and I started going out to clubs and bars and using fake IDs. And again, my friends would have a few drinks and go home. And I was never, ever satisfied. I could never reach the point I wanted to reach. I was never drunk enough, fun enough, loud enough, late enough. It was never enough. Um, And it's a classic tale of addiction. You're constantly chasing the dragon. You're never going to get there. Um, By the time I was 18, I was doing am I an alcoholic quizzes online and and scoring in the 90% aisle. And they were saying, you, yes, you, you, you look like someone who needs rehab, you know? And I would share this information with my friends over a drink at the pub and they would just dumb it down so much. You're 18. You're the life of the party. You're fine, Tash. You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. Um, And that is what everyone saw that I was fine. You know, as a lot of alcoholics, we hide the true nature of of our, our disease and a lot of the really bad, sad, awful things happen behind closed doors, um, not at the pub and not at the party. So I guess I let my friends convince me that I was okay and that it was a party and it was all right. Um, it wasn't until I got to, I would say, my mid-20s where I would start my day with a pint of wine. I would have wine in a thermos on the bus to take to my office job. I would then leave my office job to go to the pub to drink a litre of wine at the pub at lunch, go back to the office, keep drinking my desk wine, knock off, go back to the pub, then go home, have some more wine, sleep it off, start all day, like again the next day. Well, yeah, hang on. Okay. So when you're going <laughs> to your desk job, your day job, yeah. and you're starting the day with wine, yeah. like we have to unpack this because I firstly, <laughs> did they know? Did they know that you were, you must have smelt like wine. I think that. I know that there were one or two of my colleagues who knew. And at the time I was drinking through a a very heavy breakup, a very traumatic breakup. I'd moved countries back from the UK back to Australia. So I was very disjointed. There were people in my life who were concerned at this point um, and who would outwardly say, you seem to have a problem. Or I would openly say, oh, well, I have an issue. Oh, well, I'm an alcoholic. And oh, well, I this and I that. And I would excuse my behavior with putting a label on myself as if that excuses it and makes it okay I don't know I know that since then my my boss has been made aware of my behavior since then I would love to actually talk to them and see what they saw what they noticed but when I guess I say I was I was extremely high functioning a lot of people didn't know a lot of people didn't notice I went to a lot of meetings drunk and people didn't know because I think my drunk exuberance is so close 
to my natural everyday personality that people just don't quite pick up on it. And I had a I had a partner in the UK who told me outright in a very casual conversation, oh, well, it's because you're an alcoholic. And I, you know, clutched at my pearls and gasped like, how dare, like, you don't know, and just kind of tried to brush it off. And he said, well, I don't know anyone else that comes home from work after a midnight shift and puts a straw in a bottle of wine and has that before they go to bed. And I was like, well, that's my wine nap. Like, you know, it was so normal for me. Um, And especially living in the UK when on one side of my house was an off license that sold two bottles of wine for six pounds. And on the other side of my door was a newsagent that sold three litres of cider for three pounds. So I was even on the minimum wage that you earn in the UK, it is so easy to spend it on alcohol and it's so accessible and there's no tax and there's very little responsible service of alcohol. So it is very heavy all the time. And I didn't work, I didn't drive. And because I didn't drive, in my mind, that meant, oh, well, you can be drunk all the time because you'll never have to drive anywhere. Um Yes, I I lived in complete chaos. And I guess having someone who loved me and saw me tell me outright to my face in a very casual, matter of fact way that I had a drinking problem, that's kind of re-stirred that pot that I, I guess was always simmering. And I didn't really get any better at all. Yeah, until I was about 26 and, and I met that person. So obviously you're realizing it's a problem. People are pointing it out to you. Yeah. Did you try to stop? Did you have mornings where you go, oh, so you didn't even try to stop? I I didn't care enough about myself to try to stop. Um, Something that I realized in the end of addiction and in the early days of sobriety that I honestly never would have guessed is that I had a lot of self esteem issues and I had a lot of self-loathing issues and I didn't know that because I had put on this mask of portraying a confident charismatic happy person for so long that when the drinking finally stopped and reality kind of set in I did realize that I was sad and there was a lot of things that I didn't like about myself and I behaved in a way for so long that I didn't like it was really it's still really sad it's I still feel really sad for all all of the people that I you know, hurt or inadvertently was a menace around. I just didn't, I was having fun. (laughs) I was having fun. And I think I kept validating it by saying, well, my behavior doesn't hurt anyone but me. So if I want to hurt myself, that's on me. Um, I, I, again, looking back now, I can so clearly see that it was a a form of self-harm. Um, but I didn't look at it like that. I looked at it as self-care, you know, it's my drink. I need it. <laughs> I'm just looking after myself. Um, I have done the occasional dry July as a fundraising trope. And I've always, you know, demanded medals and things at the end of that month and really struggled through it. Um, but the thing is, at the end of that month, you know, the first thing I would do would buy, be as a perfect example, buy an oversized novelty wine glass that is, you know, 30 centimetre thing and then have a party to end Dry July and then the whole cycle starts all over again. And I think Mm. doing those Dry July or those months here and there over the years, in my mind, quote unquote, proved that I didn't have a problem because, see, I, I did it. I did it for a month. I can do it. I just don't want to. 
um, a classic trope that I'm sure you've heard many times. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this degree of self-loathing really, which was showing up for you, which that's, you know, it's pretty full on where you, Mm. yeah, that you just like, I'm getting so fucked up that I don't care. Yeah. I don't care enough about myself to change yeah where did that like is it okay to ask where that came from absolutely yeah and it it take it took me a really long time to figure it out and I think as with so many people in addiction or with ill mental health so many of these things come back to our childhood I always thought that I didn't deserve to be uh, upset or hurt about my childhood because it wasn't quote unquote bad enough I had parents that said they loved me. I had parents that put a roof over my head and sent me to good schools and encouraged my extracurricular activities. It wasn't until I started therapy and sought professional guidance that they helped me see that while I did have all of those things, I didn't have a parent who asked if I was okay. I didn't have a parent who nutritionally looked after me or made sure that I had meals at regular times. I didn't have a parent who said they were proud of me. And there's a whole slew of things that go along with that. And through my healing and through therapy, I can now wholeheartedly say that I forgive my family for everything that they ever inadvertently did to me because I absolutely wholeheartedly believe they did the best that they could with the information that they had from the experience that they had had and that they had grown from. And I don't begrudge them that at all. But this is probably the first time I can ever say that. If you had asked me this a year ago, I would have still been very hurt and very angry and still feeling like I needed an apology and like I needed them to recognise what had happened. But I accept that that may never happen and that cannot stand in the way of my recovery. It cannot, because I cannot wait around for people who are not ready to see themselves. Yeah. And also there comes, I guess, through this work and through this realization of, okay, recognizing that there was trauma there, but also realizing that we can't actually change the past and people are just showing up with their own traumas and they're doing the best they can, as you say. But what we can start to do now is to recognize when we're being triggered by our past in our present and how we can take responsibility or or how we can tend to whatever's showing up for us in a really healthy way that we can support ourselves and get ourselves through that. I I talk to my inner child out loud on a daily basis. Yeah. And when I think you first start to hear about that concept, the inner child work, it can sound a little bit hippy dippy, you know, even I know I've rolled my eyes at the concept before, but you catch yourself doing it all the time, or at least I did, where I would say, oh, I'm so stupid or I'm so careless. And I would repeat these things that had been told to me in childhood. And I realized that, as I'd gone on through life, I'd genuinely come to believe those things. Um, and so now I will catch myself saying, and I go, no. And I stop with everything I'm doing. And I start, and out loud, I say, no, Tash, that's not being very nice to yourself. We all have bad days or I'll talk myself through whatever the situation is out loud. I don't have to do it in a mirror. I don't have to film it or anything, but that is my habit now of no, Tash. I stop, I reevaluate, I say it out loud. And oftentimes I'm right. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And, when, and when things are showing up, it's really important to be able to tune in to that inner child and realize 
what they would have needed at the time. So if you're being triggered, if you're not feeling loved perhaps in a moment and you're feeling really triggered from that, okay, tuning in and like I say, tending to that part and saying, it's okay, you know, you are loved and almost speaking to yourself like you are. I can I can almost sense the eye rolling going on, but it it really does work because we need it to does. kind of learn to love whatever shows up. And Absolutely. it's all it's often our wounds that are showing up when we're having the big emotional response. And where does Absolutely. that come from? And how old is that? And how, mm. you know, and I think a really great practice too is really uh, working on uh perhaps working on realizing what you would have needed you know, what you would have needed when you were younger. What did you need to hear back then? And can you supply those words for yourself now? And working on those statements of, I don't know, affirmation, personal love statements that you needed to hear then and can you supply it for yourself? It's very healing work. It is. And it it Mm. can certainly, I think, feel embarrassing at the beginning when you're not Mm. used to that kind of thing. And I think the reason it can feel embarrassing is because, maybe well I know I'm like this I have a hard time accepting compliments because for a long time I didn't believe them and someone would compliment me and my initial reaction would be oh, I fooled you too like <laughs> I'm so disappointed that you even you couldn't see that I'm a monster you know um but that's not true and I know that about myself now and and you're so right when I maybe I'm having a big cry or something I will talk to myself and I just go it's okay Tash you're okay like Nothing mm. is actually happening, but it's all right to have big feelings. And mm. and I'll just tend to my wounds and, and I've grown through it. And the way I can handle those triggers and those upsets now is just so much better than it ever has been. And, and I'm excited because I know I'm only going to get better and better and better and learn more skills and put more tools in my tool belt and it'll just keep getting mm. easier. Absolutely. And when we start, when we have a high degree of self self-loathing, which I think a lot of big drinkers do have, and that's probably why they ended up in that situation, really recognizing when that self-loathing is showing up. I was talking to one of my coaching people yesterday and I was just saying, how is your relationship with yourself going at the moment? She's like, no, nah, it's still not good. Like, it's not good. And I'm like, what's, what's going on? What, you know, what, what do you say to yourself? And she's like, well, I call myself a see you next Tuesday. Yeah. Wow, that's that's big strong words to speak about yourself and yeah. you know what makes you feel like you're you're that you know what 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 yeah. what part of you tells you that you're that and tuning into that part so we're going on a tangent here but no no yeah like understanding that that's showing up and okay what does that part need to hear that's calling yourself yes yes, <laughs> right? yes. and who's really, called you that yeah, to start yeah. off with you know yeah exactly and and trying to change that. So I've been working, I just was doing this practice this morning with myself of this sort of hello, beautiful practice. So I'm just like, I know this sounds so eye rolling and cringy as well, but just waking up and reminding myself that I'm beautiful, not in a conceited way, but no. my insides, my innards are beautiful. Your energy. And, yes. And, and looking at all the parts of my body. So this is a good practice for people listening and like looking at my hands and going, wow, you are amazing hands. Like what yes. beautiful, amazing hands at work and looking at different parts of my body. Absolutely. And it's such a great practice, Tash, because it's almost like you can feel this sort of zap of energy, energy going to yes. And yes. I was reading, I can't remember what book I was reading, but he, the author was talking about when we don't love all of our parts and love all the bits mm. of our body, our body will end up sending it. Now, this might be too woo-woo for some people, but our body mm-hmm. might send us 
sickness and illness to go, I want some attention. <laughs> I believe that. Absolutely. Yeah, Body like, knows best. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a controversial yeah. concept, but it's an interesting one. And so I, just um, sending yeah, all of I, our body love. I actually, this is, and this is relevant. I actually, um, when I stopped drinking, I was diagnosed with a uh, connective tissue disorder that I had been masking my whole life with alcohol Mm. so so many of the symptoms are um, being clumsy it's called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and basically all of the connective tissue in my body is faulty Um, so right from my eyeballs my teeth my gums all the way from top to toe Um, I had a little accident actually this is so you know when people talk about how did you get sober I was sober for approximately two or three weeks before I had an accident that I came off the balcony, my foot came away from my leg and I was put on heavy, heavy endone and opiates for like a six month period. Hang on. What do you mean your foot came away from your leg? Like my, like internally it came away. Um, it just completely disjointed itself. Um, so almost like a dislocation, but the bones broke in the process as well. Um, so in through the healing process, basically, um, I, again, was put on all these opiates. And so I was trying to go through the feelings of early sobriety, but but was heavily medicated. So I couldn't see clearly time was a construct. It was all very difficult. Um, but as I sort of came off the medication and started to get into physical therapy, they, it was a long process, but they realized I had this Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And I, you know, what's the cure? There's no cure. You have to look after yourself. Looking after myself was a foreign concept. Um, So it actually kind of went hand in hand with recovery. Like, okay, I have to look after myself in an alcohol-free way, but I now actually also have to look after the body. And I'd never given myself, my body, any attention before, any awareness. I would just let it bash into things. I was always falling and tripping and because I didn't care. And I think there was a part of me that was like, maybe I want to fall over and break my whole face open. Maybe I would love a couple of days in hospital, you know, like that that sickness that addiction gives you. Um, mm. You know, maybe, maybe I want to get hit by a truck. You don't know me, that kind of feeling. Um, and then once I started to get mentally better, I could feel the pain that I had been masking all these years. And I, at the beginning of sobriety, it took me a good couple of years until I could get a proper diagnosis and proper specialists and the right medication to kind of see me through. And, and I had to learn to walk again from scratch. And, and now I roller skate. And now I, you know, um, much more able-bodied than I was, but I understand that I will still be disabled and live in chronic illness for my whole life. And that's okay because I have that knowledge now. And with that knowledge comes power. I know I can do Pilates. I know I can take these supplements. I know I can do this physio to help myself. And so now I get to look at my legs and I go, yes, legs. Yes, legs. You are strong and you carry this body around for me. Yes, hands. You create the most beautiful artwork. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess that practice of loving my body and loving what it can do for me and being so grateful and my body rewards me for it. You know, I put the yeah. good food in, I put the right meds in, I do all the things and it hurts less and it gets stronger. Mm-hmm. And it's so, yeah, it's that all goes so hand in hand for me mm-hmm. with recovery. It's all enmeshed together I think that's just so beautiful and for everyone listening I think give that a go like today at some point after hearing this yes, please. you know after you jump off go through all of your body and and notice too especially if you when the ego shows up when it tries to say don't say that about your bum mm. Mm. bum's big 
just yeah. try and break through that and go, no, no, my bum is is wonderful. It's, yes. it, it provides cushioning for me when I sit down. It powers my legs to keep me, you yes. know, see it in that way of, wow, look at it. It functions. And even if Strong it is. Strong glutes. It, we love it. Yeah. And yeah. even if you are dis like if you've got a disability, then, okay, let's see what, you know, what is still working. What's po- Yes. It's really a beautiful thing. And see how that feels in the body to receive that and and watch how the ego does show up to try and go, nah, yes. nah, 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 nah. And that's just, yeah. you can just be curious with that and go, oh, it that's is, interesting. It's fascinating, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's really fascinating too that you have got this kind of self-loathing and then you get a diagnosis with something that tells you that you're faulty. Yes, yes. But it, it, you know what though, like it, it was almost like I knew it. <laughs> I knew that there was something wrong. And, and I think this was as well part of why it was hard for me to come to terms with my addiction. Um, my parents raised us in very much a walk it off household, you know, and I'm partly so grateful for that because I have such a thick skin um, and I'm confident in so many, you know, situations out of my comfort zone because of that, you know, um, mentality. So I'm very grateful for that. However, growing up I would have frequent you know knee dislocations or finger dislocations or these nosebleeds that would go for hours and all of these symptoms they were symptoms but nobody wanted to hear me and nobody believed me and I was always told I was a hypochondriac and I was a drama queen and I was overreacting and because I was constantly fed that information when it was time to get sober I was like oh you're a drama queen oh you're overreacting oh you're doing it for attention and I told myself those things over and over and it took a long time to learn that that wasn't true and that it's okay to just this is how I am and that's okay. Like, and even if my body is faulty in all of those ways, it can still do so much and it still lets me do so much. And I will continue to work on my body and keeping it strong so that I can continue to do the best I can do. Mm, absolutely. And also when we're, when we're given messaging that, no, no, what you're feeling or what you're trying to convey to us is wrong, mm. then we start to question our own like we question ourselves. Oh, yes. Can I really yes. trust myself? And then yeah. when feelings come up, we don't, you know, we don't know how to handle them. So we, obviously go to, yeah. we go to drink. Well, it was the same being 18 and having, being so sure that I was unwell, but having all of my friends tell me, no, 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 you're a party girl. You're fine. Oh, mm. maybe I am fine. Maybe I am being overdramatic. Like it just puts so much self-doubt to someone who already had such a lack of self-awareness. It puts so much self-doubt in the mix. Um, and so then, further down the line when people did sort of say, oh, do you really want that drink? Oh, do you really want this? I had the excuses ready. Oh, I'm a party girl. Oh, I'm this. Oh, I'm that. Like I just regurgitated the things that I'd heard and just spat them back at other people as excuses. Mm. Um, It was, Mm -hmm. yes, funny in hindsight. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And so you income someone who says to you into your life, oh, you don't actually have to drink alcohol. And you're like, what? Hang on, that bold moment. Tell us about then what followed after that, yes. after hearing that? Um, well, I hadn't actually realized on that date that I drank a whole bottle of wine and that they hadn't had a drop because I was so in my own world that I didn't even notice if other people were drinking or not. Wow. Um, I just, you know, so I drank the whole thing and it wasn't until the end of the date where I actually went to pour into that and they went, no, 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 I don't drink. And I went, oh my God, since like an hour ago, since when? <laughs> and they're like, since this whole night, you know, like since the last couple of years, I was like, what? Wow. So mm-hmm. I drank this. I hadn't even noticed. And then the next morning 
And at this point, my body, as you said, was sending me very clear signals that it had had enough alcohol. I was getting alcohol poisoning every single time I drank, whether it be a bottle or six bottles. And I've had alcohol poisoning multiple times now, and I can't believe I just accepted that as part of life. Um, How did that look for you, the alcohol poisoning? drooling not being able to control my func- like the functions of my mouth really like drooling um getting a lot of what I call the mouth sweats like pre-vomit but then you never actually throw up um I would slur my words I wouldn't be able to remember words like real heavy brain fog um I would have involuntary twitches so maybe my arm would quickly slap away or, or my leg would frantically twitch and you know that's your body's trying to keep yourself alive, trying, sending synapses all through your body, oh, keep it together, like you're dying here. I would throw up this yellow foamy bile every half hour for about nine hours every time. While, while you were drinking or after? After, after I was, well, like I would stop drinking because these symptoms would set in um, and I would start to go, I don't feel great. I can't get off the floor or actually I'm going to be mm. sick. And then it would just mm-hmm. spiral. Um, and so that had happened the last three consecutive times that I had drunk. So in the last like week, and then I met this person, got the light bulb moment, ding, ding. Next morning, the symptoms of alcohol poisoning, the very unwell, the very, the shaking, all of the things and anxiety, what I call anxiety when your regular anxiety is just multiplied by a million. And I was like throwing up in the bathroom. I was like, nope, this, like, this has to stop. Like this is done. Like I am done. It's also fascinating at that time I had just been misdiagnosed actually um, with hemochromatosis, which is a blood disorder with too much iron. It turns out it was not too much iron that my body was naturally producing. I was ingesting so much ferritin from the red wine that I was giving myself blood poisoning, like through the amount of iron that I was ingesting. I'm, yeah. you know, over four years sober now. My last blood test was a few weeks ago and my ferritin is still high. Four, over four years later, I'm still detoxing those effects. Like I still sleep terribly. I've got many health conditions related to my constant abuse of alcohol through my de- de- developmental period. Um, mm. And people have to realize that. Like it might all be fun and games when you're a teenager, you know, but you have no idea how you can ruin your life. Like, those times that I was, you know, maybe actively trying to harm myself, real harm could have happened to me and it could have taken my life from all of those around me and it or damaged my life in a way that is irreparable. And and we don't think about those things enough. It's so easy to just think that a couple of drinks is a couple of drinks, but to the wrong person, a couple of drinks can be life-changing and life-wrecking. Oh, absolutely. And like you say, in that developmental stage of life, like we don't realize the amount of damage that's doing. Lissy Turner was on probably about a month ago talking about the effects it has on the endocrine system, on the, on the, on the hormones when teenagers are drinking. And it was really quite scary. Like, wow. And some of it's irreparable. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. It's, it's actually very sad to me. The person that I, I would say I started my alcoholism journey with um, is also an alcoholic still. Um, it, this is my first, you know, bad boy that I met in high school. Um, so we have been in each other's lives since we were 13. We're both in our 30s now. I'm four years sober. He is, for the first time in his life, trying to get sober. Um, mm. And it's it's very sweet. And he credits me as an inspiration to that because, you know, if Tash can do it, we've been mm. through the same trenches. We were there together. 
what's my excuse, you know? And, mm-hmm. and he's certainly not having the same time of it as me. And I wholeheartedly believe so much of that is to do with the damage done to his brain in during those puberty times. Like he always drank and did a lot more other substances as well. And I can see the way we've grown up. I can see the way that that's contributed to his development. And, and I do, I wonder what both of our lives might've been like, had we not chosen or not, it's not a choice, but had we not fallen into addiction at such a young age, I wonder where we both might be. Um, and it's okay mm. to grieve that past, um, but I, I try not to dwell on it too much because I just think the only way is forward, you know, like a shark, always forward, never back, just keep going. You can accept mm. that it happened, but as you said earlier, there's nothing you can do. So you just have to keep going. Keep going and, and learn what we can. Yeah. And try Absolutely. and change. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So you you're on the bathroom floor. You're like, Yes. This, this <laughs> is enough. Stop. Yeah, how, yeah. Tell us how you stopped. How did you quit? I know it sounds so easy, but I like I just stopped. Um, I had a big conversation with my sister about it. Um, we were living together at the time, and I said, "I'm gonna stop. Can you help me?" So we did things like removed the mini bar that we had set up in the kitchen. You know, I asked if she was gonna drink. Could she drink in her room, or could I not sit? Could you not leave the cans out? And we removed triggers things that we thought were triggers, (laughs) things that we thought were triggers. It was only kind of into the first few months of recovery that I was like, oh, I'm the trigger. It's me. I'm the problem. But learning that, you know, is also powerful. Yeah. And honestly, it was really uh, frantic because I sort of started this sobriety journey broke my foot so badly and opened a brand new business all within a three month period. So there was just so much going on all the time uh, that I think I just replaced. I always loved to work, but I definitely replaced alcoholism with being a workaholic. And I just filled every spare second of space with a job or hanging out with someone or doing something like no downtime was allowed because downtime meant I had time to think. And that meant I would and I thought I would regress and I might relapse. So no time to think, just keep doing, 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 doing. Don't give yourself any time to stop. And then I broke my leg and I had to stop, but also I was applied with all of these drugs. And so all of the thoughts that I was having were not clear. They weren't coming from a really sensical place, but it was hard not to believe that at the time. And then happens as I, as happens with so many people, I realized that the people that I had surrounded myself with were not my friends. They were just people that would drink with me. And I started to see a lot of dysfunction in my friends. And what was interesting and very sad is that the people in my life who struggled with dysfunction did not want to see me happy. They did not want to see me well. And I lost truly almost everyone because there's very very few people that I can count on one hand people that I have in my life still from who knew me when I was drinking um because so many were just randoms and I think I I think I intentionally chose people who couldn't really see me so that I could get away with this bad behavior and so that I could behave in this way and not be called out by it because I chose people who wouldn't do that and a lot of those people are still you know in their dysfunction they're still unwell because they don't they're not ready to get happy and I'm I'm glad that we moved on and and are no longer friends but it was yeah the first six months of it were very awful and very confusing And I also thought I could do it alone. So I didn't really tell anyone. I didn't come out publicly as having a problem or being sober until I had made it to one year. Um, 
again, I understand why I did this now. It was the fear of being perceived as a failure um, or the fear of being perceived as an attention seeker um, or the idea that people, and now I, even now I struggle with the idea that people don't understand how bad it really was because I'm so quote unquote young. I think people assume, oh, you were just, you know, spent a few nights, few many, two late nights at the club. And I was like, no, no, no. Like it was all day, every day for like a decade. So yeah, it was just about finding the right counselors, finding the right real friends and being open and honest with everyone around me about my needs. That's very scary. It probably took me two years before I could actively voice what I needed without guilt or without shame. When you say that, um, like voicing yes. your needs, give, yes. can you give us an example of voicing your it needs? Could be, it could be so small. It could be, hey, mate, do you have time for a FaceTime chat? Or it might be, hey, are you doing dinner tonight? Could I come over for dinner? Like I don't have the spoons to cook or I don't want to order anything. Or it could be, hey, I'm doing a job on the weekend. Is there any way you could help me bump in? I don't want to carry X, Y, Z by myself. And those are they're all very small examples. It's but just reaching out. But it's just reaching out in any way. Like I took on every single responsibility in mine and others. And I took that on all myself um, as, you know, I felt it was my job as I'd sort of been trained to do as the older sibling, you know. And now, again, I'm reparenting myself. Like, what do I need? What would make this easier? And, you know, when I may be crying, I kind of go through a checklist. I go, do I need like sensory situation. So I did, do I need a hot shower or do I need to lay in the sun? Do I need to go roller skating? Or is it a personal thing? Do I need to make a phone call? Or sometimes I just need to make a voice note. I don't even need to speak to someone on the other end. I just need to have a place, a safe place where I can talk about my feelings with no fear of judgment. And I, I might even end my voice note with, I don't even need you to respond, mate. I just needed to vent this. And then you will, your, my friends will always respond anyway. And will always reaffirm how I feel and give fantastic advice. And I have friends around me now who will tell me no <laughs> and who tell me when I'm wrong and who tell me when I'm getting a bit too chaotic. And I have never needed that more than I need it in recovery. So I am so grateful that I have real, real, real friends now. It's yeah, something mm. very, very special. Yeah, there's something really important to important in expressing what you need or asking for help if you need it. I mean, it makes all the difference. Tell yeah. me. Did you have physical withdrawals at the start because you were drinking such yeah. an extreme amount? Yeah. yeah, I got really sick. It was almost like having the flu um, for maybe like a good month or so. I was just constantly run down and unwell and nauseous. Um, I couldn't really make sense of it too much. And I guess I didn't realize what was necessarily happening. Um but I would, I would throw up most mornings. Um, I was very, very irritable with everyone around me all of the time. And I have this, I had this thing, um, you know how people say they get hangry and when they can't have food, they get, I would get like that, but with alcohol and I would be in someone's house. And if they don't offer me a drink within like the first couple of minutes, I start to get really antsy. And I'm like looking around the room. I'm like, where do you keep your wine? Like, where's your wine fridge though? Like, when are you going to get me a drink? <laughs> um, and so then in early recovery, I was looking for something, but I never knew what. And so I, I was just antsy all the time. I was just furious all the time. And then I was filled with rage and jealousy at anybody who could drink. So I had to stay off Instagram basically, because if I saw a story of someone out drinking, I was so angry at them <laughs> because it wasn't fair. And like, oh, look at you being able to have a normal drink. How great for you. <laughs> like, 
Um, it's so silly. Were you able to uh, switch that perspective to eventually look at it in, a, in the opposite way? Yeah, definitely. And mm-hmm. absolutely. Now I see, I see people who have had a couple of drinks. So I'm like, wow, that's amazing that you can stop just three drinks. That's wow. <laughs> it fully baffles me. But then I see other people and I'm like, oh, you're not well. Like, I'm so sorry. Like, I hope that you feel better, you know, but this, this performative alcohol party thing you're doing, like, it's only for your benefit. Like nobody believes this. So, and I'm sure nobody believed me in, in my situation either. I'm sure there were people that could see straight, straight through me. Bartenders, I, I know certainly could. I remember being turned away many times at like, you know, before midday being like, why don't you go back to the office? So like, why don't you like, maybe you shouldn't have Sambuca shots at 11 in the morning and I'm like, oh, you know, and it was always those times that I would get angry at the bartender. Don't you want my money? Isn't this your job? Like, how did you tend to that anger when it was showing up when you were feeling that resentment towards people that were still drinking in early days I turned it in on myself um, and that's what helped me realize that that was a pattern that I did that regularly um so I would get angry at others and then I would say the only reason you're angry is because you're so stupid and you can't handle it and it's it's you you're the reason you fucked up you're mad at yourself and then I would just internalize it and it wasn't until I learned so much more about how to speak to myself and how to love myself that I could actually say, no, that's not true. (laughs) Actually what's happening is you're being triggered right now by past behaviors. And maybe you feel a little bit ashamed of your past behaviors, watching them in somebody else. That's okay too. And again, it's just, that's okay. Uh, The best bit of therapy that I ever learned that changed my world was the concept of it can be both such a simple concept but I truly lived my life in black or white it was good or bad I was right or wrong um my feelings I then that's why I would get so confused I was like well I have this negative feeling about this person or this situation but I also have this positive so the negative must be wrong because that's my experience in life that the negative is always correct and then this person said you know it can be both you can be angry at people for having this control that you don't have while still having empathy and self-love and understanding for yourself it's it's so oh thank god you got therapy that you were able to see that and it's so true that you can be pissed off or you can grieve the fact that I can't you know I'm not doing that anymore and that's okay like you can have the both Absolutely. And it, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, I, and I use it, I use it every day. And I, I often um, mm-hmm. use it with my friends, you know, my friends say, like, oh, I'm really grieving my ex-partner and I'm grieving them and I love them so much, but also they weren't very nice to me. And I think that it's the right thing that we're not together. And I was like, it could be both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> both of those things can be true and exist simultaneously that it, it might seem like such a simple concept to some people listening, but to me, it was a world changing um, and something that I'd never just like being sober, it was something that I'd never considered before the fact that there could be two truths simultaneously. Yeah. Well, I think simplicity is best. You know, it's often those simple kind of little messages that we get that we're like, ah, oh, that makes sense. Okay. That hits home for me. Cause yes. yeah, we don't really want complex issues to deal with our already complex, um, <laughs> complex, uh, <laughs> explanations to deal with our complex issues I guess it would make it really difficult okay and so what about with just like because it was such a big part of you there was like big part of your identity how how was that also like letting go of the friends and letting go of this person that you saw yourself as being you know and this crutch that you had for so long how was that um sad and lonely like really lonely for a really long time um 
because it's hard to find true friends and true community when you're not sure on yourself. Um, that can make it extra challenging. So for a long time, I felt very isolated and I felt like no one could possibly understand. And I tried my best to find community in AA and it just, it just wasn't for me. It wasn't for me. I found that I went looking for people to relate to and I felt lonelier than ever because it was either people who had been through what I deemed to be so much worse than what I'd gone through. And in in the early days, there was so much a part of, oh, well, I'm not sick enough. I'm not bad enough. I haven't had a divorce or a death in the family or a near miss life experience. I haven't had, I haven't been to war. I don't have PTSD from Vietnam. I don't deserve to be drunk. What am I complaining about? Um, You kind of see all these other people and hear all these other experiences. And it's so easy to, belittle yourself and put your feelings down 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 Um, and even I tried you know I tried a women's group and again everyone was much older than me and their problems were not my problems their problems were about their husbands or their families or their kids and their schedules and I was like but don't you hate yourself because you're alive and it was just very difficult and even then I tried the LGBT kind of communities And I found even then it was like I didn't quite fit in because so many of the issues around addiction for this particular community also go hand in hand with gender identity or homophobia or abuse and experiences, you know, so many experiences that can affect the queer community. And I felt like I, again, didn't have a right to be there, like I didn't fit in enough um, to kind of warrant healing. It was the same way I didn't want to get sober originally I didn't feel like I deserved love I didn't deserve to be healed so I heard of something called smart recovery which you've probably heard of um I've tried diligently to find a meeting to find a representative um and I've not had very much luck so that's when I really turned to kind of doing the work myself. So I found podcasts that I liked. I would take recommendations from those podcasts. I would do a lot of online reading. I would find forums. I would talk to people in the community online. Um, I just kind of built this community around me that felt right for me, that it didn't have to be, you know, AA, or it didn't have to have a title, you know, it didn't have to be a way of doing recovery. It was just what I was doing, what was working for me. Um, I made a group chat and I put all of the important people in there who I wanted to share my journey with. And every milestone, I sent a little picture or every time I was having a hard day, I, you know, we came up with an emoji system. So all I had to do was send an emoji. I didn't have to say, I didn't have to be vulnerable or tell anyone that I was hurting or what was going on. I just sent this one emoji. It was like Morse code and everyone in my circle knew that if they had the capacity to, I could really use some support. And that was a really gentle way of breaking me into asking for what I wanted. And now I definitely have the skills and and they'll wait, they'll keep growing forever. But it was, yeah, little things like that, forming things that worked for me, the podcast especially, I find so helpful hearing other people's stories because I often relate so much more to guests on podcasts than I do strangers in a room. Absolutely. I love that building your own community and just building your your own recovery. Like you've Absolutely. built it yourself. I can relate to that because that's exactly what I did. Yeah. Um, and I think that's so wonderful. Okay. And so four years, three months down the track you know, look at you, you're just absolutely gorgeous and you're vibrant and amazing. I feel it. 
Yeah. When did that turn for you? When did you start to feel that vibrancy come back? Do you know? Do you know what? And this is ironic. <laughs> uh, it's actually when I left the person I got sober with. So, and I don't really want to discuss their story too much. It's quite sad for me. But they, we basically parted ways, and at the time we parted ways, they relapsed immediately and have not being able to get back on the bandwagon that was very heartbreaking mm-hmm. I've just yes I've just lost a partner but I've also lost hope I've lost hope in sobriety like I've lost hope that oh well it's okay because if I fall off the wagon my friends will rally around me and I watched this happen to this person and I was like how are your friends just letting you do this it's a common it's common knowledge it is fact that you are an alcoholic that you need to be in recovery. I can't believe that all of your quote unquote friends are letting you drink. And it, and I was like, that could happen to me. And it just turned into another selfish thing of that could be me. I could relapse and no one would do anything about it. And I would, I, I have the capacity to ruin my life again. And that's terrifying, really scary. And that's still something, a a big issue. The idea of relapse out of my control terrifies me. Um, But when I split with this person, that's when I had realized that I had tied, I had inadvertently in the process of healing, I had inadvertently tied so much of my being and my wellness into their wellness. And if they were well, I was well. And if they run well, then I would do anything, anything, whether it's to my detriment or not, to make that person feel better again. Um, And I became very codependent and I can, it's very, very clear in hindsight, um, leaving that codependent relationship, living on my own for the first time, buying my own car, doing absolutely everything for myself, by myself, for myself, made me see love, made me see that I'm worth doing it for, that I'm so special. And I have all of these amazing, wonderful qualities and boo-hoo to the people that don't get to see them, you know, like too bad because I am thriving. As you said, I, I really do feel like I'm thriving. And every milestone that comes up, I go, oh, four years, the rest of my life to go. And I'm excited about that. Um, Whereas the first few, I was like, oh my God, one month down, one million to go. And it's so daunting and impossible feeling. But now I'm so excited and I can't wait to, you know, be like, I've got Peter Ann, who's actually the person that uh, introduced Libby and I together. She is one of my sober icons she just reached 14 years sober she is a phenomenal entrepreneurial woman mother politician like she's fantastic and she has held my hand through every step of the way and having again people in an adult position tell you that you can do it and that I've been in your position and look at me now it's it's a huge inspiration yeah, that's amazing. It's so yeah. it's great to have that a mentor or someone that's there to sort yes. of go, yeah, you can do this. You've got yeah. this. Yeah. It's I think it goes hand in hand with why AA's people have sponsors. It makes so much sense having someone to be able to connect to like that. So um yes, Libby and, and Peter Ann are certainly what I consider my unofficial sponsors. And I know mm-hmm. for a fact that if I was ever in a, a place where relapse was even a remote possibility that speaking to those two people alone would be enough to sort it out. So I'm, I'm very confident in that. Yeah, that's incredible. Amazing. So tell us a bit about what you're doing now and like your shop yes, and yes, your art. Yeah. Like tell us a bit about that. Um, well, I kind of think I accidentally did this to build the community that I was looking for, again, completely inadvertently. I am an artist. I 
work with wearable art, strange things, just unexpected, unusual. I've always kind of had that practice of being mixed media, jumping from style to style, very eclectic, and I just make what I feel. The most important part of what I do is the community work that I do. So I work with queer youth, I work with disengaged and disabled youth, and that's really what gives me the most passion. That's what drives what I do, because I get to see people like me from when I was that age and they're all in a room and sometimes I'll have a room full of disengaged youths who maybe haven't finished high school for whatever reason and they'll kind of come in and they'll be grumpy and they they tell me that they can't and that they won't and that it's, they're bad at this and that they're not creative and they're so negative and we will do these beautiful uplifting team building workshops creative thinking workshops and we make up if the only thing you make is a mess here but that's still a good time and then I watch the development in these kids and I watch the way that they start to open up and the way they start to talk and the way their brains start to creatively put things together a little bit differently. Um, and, you know, nine times out of the 10, by the end of the workshop, they were all smiling and we're all laughing and we're all coming up with these crazy concoctions. And watching that is like watching magic happen. You're watching people find community. You're watching people overcome their, you know, self-esteem issues or their things that they think they can't and they won't. And then they see that they can and they will and they should. Um, mm. So if I could just sort of inspire people just to make art for the sake of mental health, you know, just to have some downtime, take an hour out of your week and do some collaging, like the world will keep turning. Those emails will still be there, but you will have taken an hour out to just do something calming and maybe you make a silly little picture and maybe you make nothing, um, but you've taken time out for you. And, and I, I do that a lot with adults as well with our adult workshops. I'm frequently reminding people take time out, mm. but it's, it's, I feel like I'm a very privileged situation. I especially get to see so many queer youth who are more inspiring than ever before. And, and I'm, I am excited for the future. And I guess my community is predominantly like queer neurodiverse disabled youth and they laugh in the face of adversity you know they have this language that we never even could have dreamed of and the way they know themselves can express themselves the confidence they have this is generally speaking but it is it is astounding um and it gives me so much hope because I see the way they talk and care for each other and I was like hopefully we are working towards a world where you know, sobriety is not a taboo subject and alcoholism is not a, a shame anymore. It can just be a disease that you have and you work on getting better. It doesn't have to be something that you did to yourself. Sometimes these things happen to us and that's okay too. Um, so I guess what I'm doing is trying to just spread joy and creativity and as much color as I possibly can while mm -hmm. being super authentic to myself at all times. And like I said, recovering out loud, I want to talk about it and I want to talk to people about it. Mm, yeah, it's absolutely amazing. I love what you do. I think it's such a, a beautiful thing to do and getting getting people into that space of just being creative just for the hell of it. You know, it yeah. doesn't matter or if you don't even come up with something, that's fine, but just have fun in the process. Yeah. It's yeah. beautiful to be able to lean into that creative side. Going back, if you could speak to... 14 year old Tash what would you say to her what advice would you give her oh my god that's that's too sad that's such a sad question um god I don't know I would just want her to have space to feel I feel really emotional it's really sad I just so I did childhood modeling 
so from the age like from when I was old enough to kind of walk and talk I did like modeling school and so they teach you like how to talk and how to walk and how to present yourself and how to be so as a neurodiverse person if you put me in a room and then somebody gives you step-by-step instructions on how to fake be a person I just copied that and just put it in place for my whole childhood and was like okay well these are the rules of how to be a person I'll just do those so I I I don't wish that I hadn't had that experience because it was it changed me it molded me but I wish I had had space at home or a social space or at school to be authentically myself I think that I I feel like I was acting from the age from a very young age and that comes with you know being neurodiverse but I just the only space that I felt myself was when I was alone in my room with a drink you know and I felt like I was reaching into my inner feelings and would I would feel quote unquote deeper when I was drinking, but actually you're just getting depressed. <laughs> like You're actually just becoming mm-hmm. sad. But yeah, I don't know, 14 year old Tash, I would just want to tell her that you, the way you are and the things that you're hiding don't need to be hidden. Like, yeah, I just wish I could have been as authentic as I am now my whole life. I I just wish that. And I, and I want that for younger generations as well. Just it's it can be hard to be yourself when you're younger you know kids are fucking cruel as well um I was bullied all through primary school like there's so many layers you know as to why I am the way I am but having having yeah authentic space just to be myself would have made the world of difference for me sad Mm. yeah beautiful all right well thank you so much and if people wanted to reach out to you or go you know even come and visit you at the shop absolutely absolutely I'm calamity tash on everything uh just give it a google all my socials website address location hours all of that stuff will all come up um but I'm yeah I'm always up for for a sober chat so if anyone wants to message and reach out and ask for advice or anything like that I am I am always up for it on that note, though, I will say the, the question that I get asked most regularly throughout my whole recovery has been, how do I confront my friend? That And that has been, and oh, how do I make my friend stop? And as you know, you can't make anyone do anything just, and I'm sure this is recapped a thousand times on this podcast and every other one, but you have to have your own aha moment. You can't force it. You can't make it happen all you can do is support that person and in the most gentle way possible remind them that you still love them and you still care about them you're just worried it, you know you're concerned um I think coming at things from a place of concern rather than aggression of making people change or stop um is always gonna go a little bit better but oh, yes absolutely. always like to chat on the topic yeah and I think if you're recognizing or seeing that maybe a friend or a loved one has a problem rather than getting angry with them just realizing that they just they are soothing themselves soothing themselves the only way that they know how at this point yeah Yeah. like let's ask why why these people in your life might be doing these things not how can Mm. we get them to stop but how did we get to this point and what can we change about you know the way that we interact with them that might make them feel more supported or heard or absolutely you know, be able to be listened to yeah yeah absolutely tash you're amazing thank you so much thank for you. for this i know you're super busy so thank you for your time today and um, it's been really lovely it's been a nice reflection honestly i i don't get enough time to 
have these kind of self-reflective moments. So I think it's been really valuable for me as well. So thank you. Thank you so much. Amazing. And thank you for all the work you do. This is, this is so important. Um, this kind of content is, yeah, invaluable to both people in recovery and people thinking about recovery. So congratulations to you and thank you so much for what you do for the community. Aww. Thanks, Tash. Thank you so much. See ya. Thank you. Bye. See you later. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.